This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we begin our first of two episodes on Ralph Waldo Emerson, arguably America's first distinctively American literary voice. He extraordinarily influenced and inspired some of the most notable and productive writers that this continent has ever produced. Uh, some were disciples, others totally rejected and sought to dismantle his ideology, but none of his generation ignored him, and some of America's greatest writing was produced. Well, uh, the names of his contemporaries are recognizable heavy hitters in the American canon. Names like Henry David Thoreau and Louisa May Alcott and Herman Melville, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Margaret Fuller, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson. I mean, these are American icons that were motivated not only by his ideas, but by his enthusiasm, his energy. He had and he still has an uncanny ability to imbue his listeners or today his readers with confidence, personal confidence, not in him but in ourselves. Uh, And you know, it it wasn't just writers or even mostly writers. Uh, Countless Union soldiers took Emerson's essays with them as they packed up to go fight the Civil War. They were encouraged by Emerson's words to fight onward for what was morally right. And it's said that uh, leaders as far away as Russia kept his essays on tables next to their beds. And for some, um, they've had the authority of biblical text or, or oracles. Uh, philosophers like uh, Nietzsche and uh, William James found inspiration in him. and Literally millions from all over the world have put his quotes on decorative walls and bathroom mirrors and calendars. I mean, he's everywhere. Etsy jewelry, <laughs> yeah. Instagram posts, inspirational candles. Uh, if a quote could be stuck on Emerson, is going to be in the mix somehow. I've heard him quoted in numerous graduation addresses. Um, his optimism is contagious, even if his philosophy or theology is complicated uh, and difficult to understand at times. And you know what? Sometimes it's even controversial. 
Well, you know, I found the best way for most of us to read Emerson is not to get mired down in trying to understand, you know, every little thing he says, all of his philosophical musings. I mean, he's really not even accepted as a philosopher, is he? No, he isn't. And this is ironic. Um, Emerson is an alumni of Harvard University, and today Emerson Hall holds Harvard's Department of Philosophy. Now, what's ironic about that is Emerson is not an accepted philosopher. He's not taught in any class in the building that carries his name, (laughs) nor on any college campus as a philosopher, not just Harvard's. Well, he's taught in the English department. I mean, he's inspirational, he's encouraging, whether you call it philosophy or not. He is, although he disagreed with this, associated with this idealist or social movement that today we call transcendentalism that emerged in and around Boston in the 1830s and most of us have heard of. His writings, you know, some people have called them wisdom literature, and I've seen his essays categorized from some really heavy hitters like King Solomon and Confucius and Heraclitus or, or, or Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Well, you know, there are real reasons he's been criticized as a philosopher. Um, His writings are not syllogistic at all. In fact, they're often just inconsistent. He can't create any system or systematic way of looking at the world. He didn't adhere to the dialectical side of philosophy. And I totally agree that uh, he's better suited in a course on American literature (laughs) than he is on one on American philosophy. And I do want to point out that it is a misconception uh, to consider him a religious reformer. He did have a Unitarian background, and he uses a lot of Christian terminology in his writings to a primarily Christian audience, but he was not a reformer in that regard. In fact, uh, he emphatically was not a Christian (laughs) at all. He parted ways with the Unitarian Church precisely because he could not accept some of the most basic fundamental tenets of Christianity, one of which being the divinity of Jesus Christ. If you were to have any doubt about that, look no farther than one of his most famous sermons, the one that today we call the Divinity School Address. He gave that in 1837 at Harvard Divinity School to an auditorium full of ministers getting ready to begin their ministries around the country. And in that sermon, He condemns those, and I quote him here, those with noxious exaggeration about the person of Jesus. (laughs) So that got him uninvited to speak at Harvard for the next 30 years. Well, you know, I think I can see why that might be a problem at a Christian institution. And, you know, if we were um, out there, if he were out there, I guess, trying to start a new religion or something like that, I would consider him a quack. But that was not what he was about. He was a motivational speaker, but he synthesizes ideas from various religions and ideologies, Hindu scriptures, German theology, Greek philosophers, and yes, even Christianity. He called himself a poet, and that's what I like to think of him as. That's what I like to call him. Not because his pop, you know, his poetry style is all that interesting. I mean, he didn't write anything near to the level of Dickinson or Whitman. He's a poet because he saw the world as a poet sees the world. He saw it differently and he communicated that. He, I guess, if we were going to use a modern term for what he really was, he was an influencer. But he inspires us to build, to create to seek to be an original, to be the best version of ourselves. 
And in this first essay in 1836, he reveals the path of how he sees this could happen for every one of us. You know, later on, towards the end of his life and his later writings, he wrote a collection of essays that he called The Conduct of Life. And he states that the question he had been thinking about his entire life, he says it very clearly. He says, the question is, how shall I live? This concerned him from beginning to end. He's not focused on the afterlife. He wasn't really concerned with political affairs or or current affairs as, as we think of, although he did support abolition. He was especially vocal during the Civil War. The focus of his writing that has influenced generations and spoke to us as individuals spoke about our relationship with ourselves as well as our relationship with the natural world. I find it fascinating that he was so drawn to the natural world. And I think it's interesting to notice that Emerson's life and work overlap with Charles Darwin. And there's little doubt he read Darwin's work. And Emerson was unequivocally an evolutionist. Um, In fact, over 30 years before Darwin published Origin of the Species, Emerson was using evolutionary language in his essays to describe the organization of life on this planet. And in some ways, um, they saw things similarly, but in other ways, they were diametrically opposed. How do you see that? Well, basically for Emerson, evolution was self-evident. He in no way argued against that. Um, However, he saw evolution doing something differently than what Darwin saw. Darwin saw happenstance, and Emerson saw divine order, something that is easy for us to see in his first major work titled Nature, uh, the one he published anonymously in 1836. Yeah, before we open Nature, I do want to point out that Emerson actually wrote two essays titled Nature, and and the one we're going to discuss is the first one. There was a second one by the same name. It's shorter. It came out in his second series of essays in 1844. But we're going to hit the high points of a very long essay. Um, We'll focus a little on Emerson's life up to that point, up to the place where he wrote this breakout work, and see how the events uh, developed in his life that informed this major shift in worldview. Next week, we'll tackle his most famous essay. That, of course, would be self-reliance, which, as I got the reading, I noticed is full of quotes I've heard my whole life. Yes. I mean, Emerson in general is so quotable. I mean, that's what he does best. (laughs) I'll give you an example. Um, Just last week, I saw an article from Forbes magazine uh, where in the headline it quoted Tom Brady, the retired American football player, who was quoted in an Emerson poem. You know, I saw that article, too, uh, and I read it. But unfortunately, I need to tell uh, Tom Brady a bit of bad news. Oh, (laughs) you have bad news for Tom Brady? Yes. He quoted a a poem attributed to Emerson called Success, but that tribute is a mistake. What, What? What's going on? Here's the poem. What, and everyone has said it, Emerson wrote it for, for a long time. What is success? To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people, the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics, and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate the beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a better place, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. 
hated. This is a great little poem, and everyone always loves it, and the internet will tell you that it was written by Emerson, but it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually written by a woman named Bessie Anderson Stanley. Well, how did that happen? I know. It's funny. In 1904, there was a magazine contest. They offered $250 to anyone who could write the definition of success in under 100 words. And this woman, Bessie Stanley, won. She got published. Ann Landers, who's a famous columnist, years later liked the quote. And for whatever reason, I can't understand why, she reprinted it, claiming it was Ralph Waldo Emerson that had said it. And that has stuck. You can Google it. Everyone thinks Emerson wrote it, but he didn't. Well, I mean, uh, I I guess there's a moral there, but I'm not really sure what it would be. (laughs) I know, right. But having said that, I guess it's time to talk about the real Emerson quotes and his real story. Gary, give us a little context. Give us a little bio about Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson was born in Boston on May 25th, 1803, a hundred years before that magazine contest, by the way. He was the ninth generation of Christian ministers dating back before the founding of the United States. Now, remember, uh, the American state dates to 1776, and we've talked about American expansion before, but you know, it's really easy to forget that America is a young country. It's younger than we really think, and when Emerson is born, get this, Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, is president. Uh, no one knows if the American democratic experiment will actually work. It's under a lot of stress. There's a great pride in this new American experiment, but there's also a lot of underconfidence. America is undeveloped for the most part. There's a lot of beautiful land, but we don't have an identity as a nation. There's uh, very little to know American music or American culture or American art, at least among the descendants of the European settlers. And there's this notion that everything good is imported from Europe. And this is not unlike the feeling we see today in many third world countries where anything from somewhere else is better than anything from here. You know, it's a sense of cultural inferiority. And the Americans had a great deal of that. If you wanted historical, cultural, scientific, or religious understanding, you better look across the ocean. Um, Emerson's family was from Boston, and his father was a notable Unitarian minister, uh, even the chaplain of the state senate. Unfortunately, he died when Emerson was just a child, and Emerson's mom ran a boarding house and, as a single mother, still managed for Emerson to attend Boston Latin School and, at age 17, Harvard College, and then, at age 21, Harvard Divinity School. And Emerson studied the Bible, the Greeks, the Romans, the Enlightenment, the Romantics. All America, including him, is looking across the ocean and back in time for wisdom, for technology, for direction. And when we see the opening paragraph of Nature, Emerson reacts very strongly and very negatively to that kind of education, and that is the beginning. Well, I think there's some other contributing factors to his questioning the status quo. Uh, One was his exposure to some very non-traditional, highly intelligent, well-educated, strong women that influenced him. One particular woman... Uh, who stands out and who influenced his thinking perhaps more than anyone, was his Aunt Mary Moody Emerson. 
Emerson stated that he considered her a genius, and it was the back-and-forth correspondence with her over many decades, this is both in person and in writing, that developed some of his key ideas. I mean, ideas about individualism, the soul, nature, the value of educating oneself, taking that responsibility on, and so forth. I mean, scholars who research this, this sort of thing can track the development of Emerson's thoughts very well because he journaled. I mean, he's better tracked than almost anyone. He started journaling when he was 16 and he never stopped. There are over 300 million words in published volumes of his journals. I don't even know if you can imagine that. He called them his artificial memory, a living part of him. And it's how he did his thinking. We see him, if we're willing to look through all those 300, yeah, 300 million, million words. words, but you can track you know, him engaging different ideas and working them out. For example, if you look in Emerson's journals, you can see that he was transcribing his aunt's ideas, her words, word for word, into his journals. Then he would engage them. In 1827, in one of his many letters to his Aunt Mary, he writes this, A portion of truth, bright and sublime, lives in every moment to every man. Now, that might not seem interesting to us from our vantage point. You may have seen that on a card somewhere. But from the common understanding of the world at that time, you know, Gary, that that's not a common thing to say. It's not, and because it's very individualistic, for sure, which... That word didn't even exist in 1827. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, one of my favorites, uh, you've heard me talk about him before. He coined the word individualism in his work, Democracy in America. But no one had even heard of it before then. No one had really even thought in those terms. So we're creating something new here. Except for Emerson. <laughs> and he is the creator of it. But he it. didn't use that word because it didn't exist. We're going to see, and to what extent you want to agree with him or not, that is up to every individual. Emerson would want it to be so. But Emerson really began to believe that there is goodness, there is divinity, to use his language, inside every single person. And because of that, there is power in every individual to change the world, one person at a time. Every individual can find this power in themselves through their own encounter with nature. And nature with a capital N, something divine. Ultimately, he's going to use this term, the oversoul. But as you can imagine, this type of speaking, this kind of thinking, is a huge departure from his Puritan roots. (laughs) You know, he's, he burned a lot of bridges with them. So, <laughs> oh. You know, uh, Puritans believed in the total depravity of man, uh, that there is nothing good inside of a person at all. They also believed in truth as revealed only through the Bible or through the preaching of the Bible by ministers. Uh, they not only did not believe in revelation inside of every man, but in Boston's early days, they actually hung Quakers who did. And so, by looking at his journals, you can see that this clash was inevitable. By 1829, his thinking has shifted further, but he's still ordained as the pastor of a very prestigious church, the Second Church in Boston. He's also married to the love of his life, the beautiful 19-year-old Ellen Tucker. However, 
1831, Ellen, as many did in her age, died of tuberculosis, and this absolutely derailed him. His thinking and his beliefs, they'd already progressed in ways that would not allow him to follow traditional you know, Christian views, but the loss of her, I mean, that just did him in. Uh, that next year, in full disclosure, he told the church leadership that he could not perform communion because he didn't believe in it. This led to his resignation and really maybe a low point in his life. And so he did what lots of people do when they hit that bottom. He got out of town. And in 1833, he took a ship to Europe. Uh, he, he was on his way to England, to, to, to the continent at large, but there wasn't really an immediate way to get there. So he basically took the first boat that would get him out of town, and he ended up going to Italy and England via Malta. On that boat, he wrote in his journal what would end up being the central message of his entire life. He wrote this, Henceforth, please God, forever I forego the yoke of men's opinions. I will be light, hearted as a bird, and live with God. I find him in the bottom of my heart. I hear continually his voice therein. Emerson uh, went to Europe three times over the course of his life, and the next two times as a celebrity, but this first time at age 29, he was a nobody, a speck. Uh, but this trip <laughs> changed his life, and he spent six months in Italy, which sounds like a great thing to do. <laughs> Then he went to Paris and visited the Jardin de Plantes. It was in this garden environment that he had this kind of spiritual awakening. He had this insight about God and about man, about the natural order of things, about how truth is discovered. It changed everything. When he came back to the United States after finishing his tour in both England and Scotland, he came back to America, a different person with a different strategy in how to find truth in the world. He was no longer going to find truth by reading books. I mean, I know your kids would love that one, right? <laughs> uh, instead, he would look inward into himself and into the natural world. He said this, The teacher of the coming age must occupy himself in the study and explanation of the moral constitution of man more than the elucidation of difficult texts. Well, that's what he not only set out to do, but he tries to get everybody else to do, too. He wrote this first essay, Nature, in a house called the Manse, which is in Concord, right in front of the North Bridge where the Colonial Army fought off the British during the Revolutionary War. You can visit this house to this day. It's preserved, not only because Emerson lived there, but Nathaniel Hawthorne would later buy it and live there, too. But it was sitting in this house overlooking a beautiful lake that this first manifesto is created. Let's read the first two paragraphs, and then we'll break it down and, and see what he's trying to say. Well, before we jump into it, I want to mention we did have the opportunity to visit the manse and the North Bridge. In a space of 100 yards, you've got the Revolutionary War and a Transcendentalist movement all in one spot. It's pretty amazing. And historical. Yeah. <laughs> so let me read what he says. Our age is retrospective. It builds the sepulchers of the fathers. It writes biographies, histories, and criticism. The foregoing generations beheld God and nature face to face. We, through their eyes, 
Why should not we also enjoy an original relation to the universe? Why should we not have a poetry and philosophy of insight and not of tradition, and a religion by revelation to us and not the history of theirs? Embosomed for a season in nature, whose floods of life stream around and through us and invite us by the powers they supply to action proportioned to nature, why should we grope among the dry bones of the past or put the living generation into masquerade out of its faded wardrobe? The sun shines today also. There is more wool and flax in the fields. There are new lands, new men, new thoughts. Let us demand our own works and laws and worship. Undoubtedly, we have no questions to ask which are unanswerable. We must trust the perfection of the creation so far as to believe that whatever curiosity the order of things has awakened in our minds, the order of things can satisfy. Every man's condition is a solution in hieroglyphic to those inquiries he would put. He acts it as life before he apprehends it as truth. In like manner, nature is already, in its forms and tendencies, describing its own design. Let us interrogate the great apparition that shined so peacefully around us. Let us inquire, to what end is nature? You know, you could read that paragraph three or four times and, and to really understand what he's trying to say. But what to what end is nature? He's setting up his argument. Essentially, Emerson is going to say, we claim to study God to get to know how the universe works, but we're doing it by reading what other people have experienced. And he would not just include Shakespeare, Plato, Dante, or, or the great traditional writers of the West, but he's very emphatically talking about the people of the East, people who have claimed to see God or be God, Jesus of the New Testament, Moses of the Old Testament, the sage Vyasa of the Bhagavad Gita. These are all texts that he had studied at length. But for Emerson, and the case he's going to set out in this essay, is that God is in nature. And if you want to know God, you need to be in nature. Now that sounds simple, that he's encouraging you to hike. And certainly that's not new. And yes, he is encouraging you to hike, but it's much more than that. He makes an analogy to hieroglyphics, which is uh, interesting from the historical perspective. Um, if you've ever heard of the Rosetta Stone, uh, you might know that in 1822, a Frenchman announced in Paris that they had uncovered how to read hieroglyphics by transliterating this Rosetta Stone. And this is a huge discovery. Uh, you know, it's a mystery dating thousands of years, and it's been solved. And so he's saying everything Every age-old mystery of the universe works the same. Every human and natural mystery can be solved. I mean, that's, that's quite a claim to make. Well, it is. But remember, you know, he defines nature in broader terms than we generally think. He certainly defines it in what he calls the common way. But he's also going to say there's nature in the philosophical way. This is nature with a capital N. Uh, you know, it seems to me that for Emerson, nature with a capital N is kind of like the force in Star Wars. I mean, it's a, a non-personal living energy of the universe. And, you know, it's, a, it's very much an Eastern understanding of God, if you will. Yeah, I think the force is a great way of understanding his understanding. And I like to think Emerson's explanation of how man finds God in nature 
is where Eastern theology and Western theology can find agreement, which they don't often. Um, you know, all three major monotheistic religions see God as a person. Uh, they would say that God as a personal entity speaks uh, and that he can be seen through nature. He can speak through nature into the heart of man, but he's not pretty much a person. Eastern views God less of a personality, but they still see God as residing in nature in a spiritual sense. What God is doing in the transformative and creative effect that God has on humans through divine interaction in nature. Now, that's a place of agreement between the East and the West. And Emerson sets out in his essay to demonstrate this. He seeks to express how man can not only find peace and beauty in nature, but things that will push him forward, creativity, art, spirituality, individuality, wisdom. Nature is our source for whatever we want to call that wind or spirit that can bring life into us. Not society doesn't bring this into us, not other people, not sacred text. But nature is where we meet God. Let's use his words. Far readers can I ask you a question. Is George Lucas a transcendentalist? He's a Buddhist. <laughs> okay. But that's where East and West agree. They right. both see nature. To go into solitude, a man needs to retire as much from his chamber as from society. I am not solitary whilst I read and write, though nobody's with me. But if a man would be alone, let him look at the stars. The rays that come from those heavenly worlds will separate between him and what he touches. One might think the atmosphere was made transparent with this design to give man in heavenly bodies the perpetual presence of the sublime. Seen in the streets of cities, how great they are. If the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would men believe and adore and preserve for many generations the resemblance of the city of God which had been shown. But every night come out these envoys of beauty and light the universe with their admonishing smile. The stars awaken a certain reverence because, though always present, they are inaccessible. But all natural objects make a kindred impression when the mind is open to their influence. Nature never wears a mean appearance." Neither does the wisest man extort her secret and lose his curiosity for finding out all her perfection. And so there's his first assertion. Go outside by yourself and let nature bring a sublime presence inside of you. This is feeling that you get when you stay out there. Just let your mind run wild with those stars. That's the presence of God. You know, last week I took my students outside and we read out of Thoreau's book, Walden, which they agree a lot of the same thing. But for homework, I asked them to go outside over the weekend, sit somewhere in the natural environment in silence for five minutes, not to have a phone, no music, no friends, no books, no movies, nothing. It's surprising that not very many of us really do that anymore. And it has to be done consciously. No, we're not encouraged to sit in silence anymore, especially not outside. Um, it's a disconcerting function of modern life. You know, pop in those earbuds, play that game, answer those texts, post that picture, uh, don't break that streak. I mean, 
if we have a phone in our pockets, we're never really alone with just our thoughts. And we might not be with another human being, but even if they are pre-recordings when we're wired up to something or to the Internet or TikTok or music, we're not alone with ourselves. Um, so how did the kids do? Well, I asked them to post their experiences in a discussion, and I was shocked that many of them reported that they did do the assignment. Uh, They reported not wanting to, and that it made them uncomfortable. They kept thinking about what might happen when they weren't on their phones. What if their mom texts? One kid said, I kept thinking about the shop where my tuxedo was getting hemmed. I was just worried he was going to text and say they were ready. It was surprising that most could only handle about five minutes, but there were a few that stayed for 15, a few went 30, a couple went on a run without a phone. Lots of them talked about how anxious it made them at the very first, but those who stuck it out for more than just one or two minutes almost all admitted that that feeling of anxiety did go away and they experienced something different. Emerson talked about the feeling that I heard them describe. This is how Emerson described what I think these kids were describing. Let me quote him. Wild delight that runs through the man in spite of real sorrows. Emerson says, Nature says he is my creature and maugre all his impertinent griefs. He shall be glad with me. You know, some of my students even experienced what Emerson claims when he says, I have enjoyed a perfect exhilaration. I am glad to the brink of fear. Emerson claims that in the woods is perpetual youth. And I think that's true. Uh, When we are out in a beautiful field and are entirely unplugged, we may feel like running. And, you know, that depends on our personality. Uh, Maybe we just want to sit and experience wind or the sun, or hear birds and smell flowers, most of us will find enjoyment, really, in that kind of environment. True. And let me continue to read what Emerson says. There I feel that. Nothing can befall me in life. No disgrace, no calamity. Leaving me my eyes, which nature cannot repair. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into space, All mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part and particle of God. This, by the way, if you've never heard that line, is perhaps one of his very most favorite. Everyone loves the line, I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. (laughs) That's a lot to ponder. So what do you think it means? Well, here's another funny line that kind of, I think, explains it. He says this, The greatest delight which the fields and woods minister is the suggesting of an occult relationship between man and the vegetable. Hmm. That word, occult, it means mystical. And that's what Emerson means. There is something mystical, something he would call divine. There is something restorative about being in nature, and he calls that God. When he says you become a transparent eyeball in that environment, what he's saying is God speaks to you. If you want to look at at the way the Christian talks about the world, if you want to use Star Wars terminology, you can say you can feel the force in you. 
Either way, think of it. It's divinity expressing itself, not just to you, but through you. And that is mystical talk and a cult relationship between the man and the vegetable. It sounds crazy, but I don't think it's crazy talk. In fact, I think most of us have felt this thing that he's trying to describe. But what does this experience with divinity do for us besides make us feel sublime, to use his word? You know, there's a a way to experience this, and that's the rest of the essay. That's what he's talking about. What does nature do to us and for us and through us? He answers this question in four sections. The first section, commodity, what, what nature does to us, beauty, language, and discipline. And, you know, if we had time, we could talk about each one of these four sections because there's plenty to say and, and to read and dissect. But I just want to feature one the chapter on beauty. The chapter on beauty is the second one. It comes after the first one titled Commodity. That one has a lot to say, but essentially he's going to quote George Herbert saying that in nature more servants wait on man than he'll take notice of, the I being that we are 100% relying on nature for every breath at every second of our lives and we don't not just appreciate nature, we don't even notice what it's doing, which is, of course, the reason most of us don't take care of it the way we should. And of course, that's absolutely entirely true. But if you want to read more on that, go pick it up. It's a very short section. Emerson starts the chapter on beauty with the breakdown of the Greek word for world, which is cosmos. Cosmos means world. You think of cosmonaut, the person who explores space and looks at the world. But he points out that the term cosmos doesn't just mean world. It means beauty. Think cosmetologists, cosmetology. A cosmetologist doesn't go to space. A cosmetologist makes us beautiful. And so Emerson's assertion in this section is not just that there is beauty in the world, but that nature in all of its aspects, even the ones you might say are ugly, isn't. Is It is the definition of beauty. Nature, by definition, is beauty. It is the light. Light is the first of painters, he says. There is no object so foul that intense light will not make beautiful. Almost all the individual forms are agreeable to the eye, as is proved by our endless imitation of some of them as the acorn the grape the pine cone the wheat ear the egg the wings the forms of most birds the lion's claw the serpent the butterflies the seashells flames clouds buds leaves and the forms of of many of trees and the palm the simplest perception of nature forms is a delight to the body and mind which have been cramped by nauseous worker company Nature is medicinal and restores their time. <laughs> yes. And this isn't controversial. I mean, uh, when we go to the Memphis Zoo, some of the most popular exhibits feature animals that aren't traditionally cute. Uh, kids love the spider house and the bat house and the, the snake house and the reptile house. And they're all fascinating, uh, maybe even more so than the monkeys or your favorite, the meerkats. <laughs> Um, His next claim, however, is less traditional and very dependent 
on that assumption uh, made in part one that nature is divine or God. He claims there is connection between nature and beauty to thought and virtue. Uh, The idea being, uh, the better of a person you are, the more you channel nature. Or maybe I should say it's the opposite way, uh, the more you channel nature, uh, the more you become that transparent eyeball. and The more beautiful you are, uh, the more thoughtful, the more moral of a person you're going to become. And uh, to quote him, every heroic act is also decent and causes the place and the bystanders to shine. We are taught by great actions that the universe is the property of every individual in it. A virtuous man is in unison with his works and makes the central figure of the visible sphere. Homer, Pindar, Socrates, he references the powerful Greek thinkers. uh, And of course, the visible heavens and earth sympathize with Jesus. Yeah, and I kind of agree uh, with with that. I mean, he's going to equate great thoughts with great virtue with experiencing nature but he's also going to say that noble and great people generate or express great beauty and of course this is a broader definition of beauty it's a moral definition of beauty and i think we've all experienced that think of that elderly grandmother person that you know that has a beautiful soul And when you look at them, you don't see somebody old. You see somebody beautiful. You see wisdom. You see compassion. You see grace. And when that person smiles, it's just beauty, divine beauty. You know, I could camp out here and think about this divine connection between nature and morality and beauty. And, you know, that's probably something we should do more of. And I think this last connection that he makes is even more fascinating. He finishes this section on beauty saying that people who see nature, who see virtue, who see high thought and recognize it for what they are, see them as beautiful, that is a person who has what we call taste. (laughs) And so the question is, Gary, are you a man of good taste? (laughs) Well, I like to think I am. Um, Nature is a sea of forms radically alike and even unique. A leaf, a sunbeam, a landscape, the ocean make an analogous impression on the mind. I mean, I'm quoting Emerson, by the way, (laughs) unless you thought those were my words, right? Uh, What is common to them all that perfectness and harmony is beauty. The standard of beauty is the entire circuit of natural forms, the totality of nature. Thus is art, a nature passed through the alembic of man, Thus in art does nature work through the will of a man filled with the beauty of her first works. You know, my favorite contemporary artist currently is a man by the name of Marcus Cicada. I'll I'll post a picture of his work on Instagram. Marcus was born and raised, and he was a nature guide, or he is a nature guide in the area of Minas Gerais, Brazil, about a couple of hours from where I grew up. It's a beautiful place called Serra do Cipó. Marcos has no professional training in art, but he's lived in the mountains his whole life. He's been inspired by nature, and he started painting. Except Marcos did not have access to conventional paint. So what he did was he made his own paint out of the dirt of the land and naturally occurring dyes that he could create from those plants and organic things that he had access to. Emerson would claim... This is what we call divine inspiration. So Marcus paints. He painted his own environment. He paints landscapes of his mountain home. 
a childhood friend of mine, Rodrigo, just happened to be hiking in the mountains and he saw Marcus's work and immediately detected beauty. He saw the connection, the powerful connection between Marcus's art and nature. Rodrigo is a man of accepted, refined taste. He owns an art gallery in Belo Horizonte, and he makes a living displaying the work of Brazil's greatest contemporary artist. Rodrigo bought some of Marcos's work and began this relationship with Marcos. This was a few years ago. Over time, Rodrigo has been selling Marcos's art in his gallery in Belo. In two weeks from the initial recording of this podcast, Marcus is going to be displaying his work in an art show in the heart of New York City's art district. It's an incredible journey. When Rodrigo first met uh, Marcus, his work could be purchased for next to nothing. Today, Gary, we cannot afford one of these (laughs) paintings. They're truly beautiful and they're expensive and it's not a fad. His paintings are valuable because they're truly beautiful. But what is beautiful about them is this clear and obvious connection to nature, to life, to divinity. I think it's appropriate to read a last few sections of Emerson's words on his idea of beauty. The world thus exists to the soul to satisfy the desire of beauty. This element I call an ultimate end. No reason can be asked or given why the soul seeks beauty. Beauty, in its largest and profoundest sense, is one expression for the universe. God is the all-fair truth and goodness, and beauty are but different faces of same all. But beauty in nature is not ultimate. It is the herald of inward and eternal beauty, and is not alone a solid and satisfactory good. It must stand as a part and not as yet the last or highest expression of the final cause of nature. And of course, that word nature is nature with a capital N. And I like that. It's a challenge. Pursue your own experience in nature. Look for it. Look for the beautiful goodness in others. Look for the beautiful thoughts, the beautiful ideas of others. Look at beautiful art. And if you can see it and know it for what it is, you are a person of good taste because you can see and you can identify the many beautiful expressions of God. Well, there's a lot going on in that essay. Uh, a lot more to unpack. So uh, thank you for listening uh, to us today as we discuss the uh, philosophical and theological and artistic and sometimes very confusing thoughts of Ralph Waldo Emerson. If uh, you're ready for round two, the next episode we're going to tackle his most famous piece titled Self-Reliance. I hope you'll join us. But between now and then, take that nature challenge. Go outside without your phone, without your headphones, without another person, and commune with nature. See if you can make it five minutes or more. And if you can, uh, how does it make you feel? So leave a comment in the comment section if you do. Uh, And as always, feel free to comment or connect on any of our social medias. You know, our Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. As always, also, while you're on social media, share an episode with a friend and just text one. Or play one when you share We Grow. Peace out.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.